Hi, welcome to Botanical. I am your host, Matt Mercure, and it's been a while. And I want to start off by saying sorry if you've been waiting very eagerly, patiently, or if you've been wondering if the show has been put on hiatus or anything like that. There have been a series of unfortunate sequences since the Toyon episode. Um, most unfortunate being that I got hit by a car and I have been slowly recovering from that. But both body and mind having received a royal kick, I'm okay. Nothing seriously bad happened to me. Nothing got broken. So no worries there. And I'm just saying this in an effort to be upfront and transparent about why this episode is so late and just give a general update on how the show will return cut from the holidays. I expect to resume the schedule that I had before, which was an episode every two weeks. I do hope to have an episode every week at some point. My schedule has just been getting consistently busier, but I think as I work on this show and figuring out a formula that works, I think I can get an episode done in a couple of days and have one out every week. But as it stands, still expect an episode every two weeks, and you'll be able to find that on Anchor FM or wherever you find your podcasts on Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, anywhere like that. It should be wherever you listen to podcasts. But if it's not, and there's a platform you prefer, you know, please let me know. I would like to get on there for you to listen to, um, whatever makes it easiest. You can reach me at info at botanicalpodcast.com. Or if you have any other questions, please, you know, just shoot. If you want to just talk, whatever, you know, let's, let's uh, have a correspondence going. So that's all for the personal updates. And I do hope that um, this episode, since I have been away for a while, this episode has been kind of broken up um, in bits and pieces from what I could record. Uh, but I hope it doesn't sound too stiff at all. That's all the personal updates. So let's get into the episode. So I want to ask you, have you noticed this really strong uptick in the commonality of houseplants? Maybe in your friends' places, in your own apartment, in cafes, maybe even your bookstore. And also the likelihood of this one plant being almost everywhere. Uh, the maidenhair fern. You know, it's the one that's notorious for being difficult to grow. It's moody. You know, it just seems like it wants to die. It just gets brown really quickly. You have to, you know, maybe develop special modifications to how you water it, or maybe you spray it, or maybe you use the rock method to try to increase the amount of moisture and humidity. It's like they're practically begging us to dote on them, to pamper them, to take care of them. And have you ever noticed, too, you know, the growing habits, they like to be grown away from the light. Um, they like to grow in the shade of another plant kind of hide almost in plain sight. They're surreptitious. Their surreptitiousness is almost conspicuous. And then you go a little deeper. You dive into the species as it stands here in California with some of the natives. And you see that they're connected to something dangerous, something like an unknown alien pathogen that they're carriers of. And you wonder, is this an invasion? You know, is this like the day of the triffids? Are we being taken over? by the maidenhairs. It's an invasion of the maidenhairs. Um, and I'm, of course, joking. But there are a lot of eccentricities and idiosyncrasies of this plant that make it just fun to talk about. Um, and I think maybe through learning about some natives here might help you understand that plant that you are hopefully not stressing too much over in your house. And also maybe to understand some important things you're going to have to do if you do see it out in nature. So for now, let's just sit with that thought of a maidenhair fern takeover. And when we come back, 
we'll talk about a specific native, the California fan maidenhair fern, or the Adiantum chorna. Gives you valuable information about um, some characteristics of the species. Adiantum can be broken down from the word, the Greek word for unwettable, and this is important because it means that it's referring to that the leaves of the maidenhair ferns actually repel water, and this is an important char characteristic of them because they're generally around um, running water sources, maybe like a waterfall. So rather than getting drowned, they can actually um, get that water off their leaves. A lot of it will be going to their roots. They're in the Pteridaceae family, which offhandedly just makes me think of pterodactyl. And I just, <laughs> I just think of, the, I just get this image of like a pterodactyl hanging out and like this, this throng of uh, maidenhair ferns is kind of cool. Anyway, that's also known as the brake family. And the brake family is known with to be, to consist of plants that like to grow in soil or among rocks. And among rocks is really crucial for um, the adiantum. They're also known as a perennial herb, and I thought this would be a fun point to break down what herb means in botanical terms. So an herb, rather than something that we might use in the kitchen, or botanist, rather means a plant that bears seeds, that ha does not have a woody stem, and that will die down to the ground after flowering. So while you may not ever use that term on your own, you know, if you ever see that um, doing research for, you know, maybe a houseplant or something you're trying to grow, and you see a herb, um, that's probably more likely what they're referring to. They might specify if it's like a cooking herb. And the brake family, the Pteridaceae family, has about 40 genera, with Adiantum being one of those, and has about 500 species, which is pretty remarkable because Adiantum has about 200 species alone. Um, and it has five native to California. The Adiantum jordani, it is summer deciduous, and it grows to be about two feet tall and about two to three feet wide is the spread of it. Um, and we're also when you see these, these, um, this data for height and dimensions, they're generally going for almost like a peak performance in a way. It's not like an average. It's generally like under really great conditions the plant will get that big. However, with that said, I have seen some um, actually at the UC Davis Arboretum that are rather big. So they do happen, but that's, you know, that's more of a created um, wilderness. So it's getting a lot of water, getting a lot of resources is being taken care of. So when you see this in, in the wild, you know, I would see it in smaller clusters. And the ecologies that they go towards are shaded hillsides. They need, a, they need quite a bit of shade in moist woods. They are native in California, Oregon, and parts of Baja, California. So they actually can do decently in warmer climates, the natives here, which might seem counterintuitive for a lot of you who have grown a maiden hair fern at home because they seem to do terrible in the heat, you know, they hate sunshine. Um, but actually in coastal regions um, where actually the Jordan eye is native, they can do decently with, they actually prefer a little bit of sun in, um, 
these coastal ecologies. If you're not really particularly familiar with maidenhair fern, um, I think I should try to describe what it looks like real quick. So if you just think of a, a general fern, how it grows, how it kind of has these stalks that just shoot out and kind of drape over this nice kind of, I don't know, like a nice dark green, like a, like a verdant green color. But the maidenhair fern, in particular the Jordanite, is really small and its leaves look like the ginkgo tree, which they actually share the name, maidenhair. And I originally thought I was, you know, for a while I've been curious, like, was one named after the other? Is the maidenhair fern named after the, the ginkgo tree, the maidenhair tree? You know, also I was curious about, was there mimicry between the species at all? And I was not able to get to the bottom of if there's any um, mimetism in the species, like evolved mimetism. But the socio-botanical history behind these plants is that the maidenhair fern actually was had that name first. And that is referring to the genera's um, lace-like, really delicate black stems that people thought looked like the hair of a woman. I had I had heard the story that the maidenhair tree got its name because the leaf looks like a comb or like a fan, which would have been found in a woman's hair. So I don't know, a little strange, but that was what the story I saw was that the maidenhair tree got its name from maidenhair birds because they have this, the, their leaves are almost identical. However, with that said, I think Jordani in particular has a leaf that looks a little bit more reniform or kidney, kidney-like or almost like a spleen. They're a little bit more rounded, I think, than they are fan-shaped. But some of the other ones, actually, I think the Adiantum tracei one almost looks, the leaf looks almost identical to the ginkgo biloba because it also has that lobe near the uh, tip of the or at the top of the leaf's margin. And for any of you out there who enjoys Pokemon, I think this plant actually, or this plant reminds me somewhat of Eevee, and that it has different types of growing modes, or almost like elementals. Maybe you could, I don't know, you could think of it as like any type of RPG where you could choose a class, or before you, like, you choose like you're an elf, or you know, you're uh, a mermaid, or something like that. And I mean, I'm saying that because it has different modes of growth. It's lithophic, which means that it can grow on rocks or just loves rocks. That's what that word really means if you break it down. It's terrestrial, which is just a nice way of saying it likes to grow in soil. Or it's also epiphytic, which is a fancy word for saying, for me, it's about the same thing as saying air plant. So these are plants that grow on the surface of another plant, are from the air, rain, any type of water, or runoff, or any nearby debris. So any air plant that you have is epiphytic. So if you ever, you know, if you're ever trying to think or memorize, you know, these things, maybe think of it as like elemental or like different um, evolutions, um, if Pokemon is a concept that really speaks to you. So the cool thing about this plant is it is found probably in dense populations more on the northern coast, um, and it is found as like a low-lying shade plant in forests. So you probably could see it up in Humboldt, you know, next to maybe underneath a tree, near running on like in a water source. You probably most likely find it in the rocky crevice. Um, that's where they're most commonly described as being found. You might you might see them popping up after a lot of rainfall where you've never seen them before. And that's probably because they've gone dormant. These plants can actually go dormant for a while and then pop up. So again, they can take a sun on a little sun on the coast, but if you are trying to grow them inland, they need full shade. They can tolerate cold up to about 15 degrees Fahrenheit, which is actually a number I've been seeing quite common for California natives. And they can go up to about 96 degrees Fahrenheit. Really particular about their drainage are I mean they, they seem like they're adaptable but they do prefer as they are like a coastal fern they prefer sandy 
are clay soils, a pH between 5.5 to 8.2, if you're getting really, you know, getting really into it. Um, so if you're trying to find them in the wild, look around shaded stream sides, look around springs, moist hillsides, and the north side of rock outcroppings, which might seem a little strange. Why would it have to be north? But we're still referring to less the lack of light that is received on that part. The north generally receives less light, so that's probably why these plants would generally block there. A common common plants are found around are oaks and pines. Traditionally, the Adiantum jordani was used by the Loni, who were formerly known as the Costanoans. And Costanoans is a Spanish word for coastal, which is something I never knew before. In fact, I must admit that I, I, I guess I assume they were two different groups. Um, but the Loni used the jordani for... Um, as a painkiller or analgesic for anything that hurt beneath the shoulders. They used it to purify blood. They used it to ease general like, stomach upset and also to expel the afterbirth. The Pomo and the Yurok tribes both would use it as a decorative material for baskets. They would dry and split the stems. And, and then uh, the Yokia, as well as the Pomo, would use the stem for jewelry. They would take it and um, place it through their ear to keep the hole open. And then they would traditionally, I believe, stick a feather in there as well. And the Yoki actually would call it the ear stick tree, which I think carries down that um, tradition of using it as uh, like an earring. The Pomo called it the fish fern, which makes me wonder if they found it most commonly around rivers. Um, and then Miwok, a totally different tribe, called it the black fern root. I think really draws attention to how, this, kind of like the, the strong contrast and the strong um, visual appeal at the black stems have, which is something that Westerners, you know, were attracted to as well. So the Jordani naturally crosses with another California native, which is the Western maidenhair fern, known as Adiantum alluticum, to create Adiantum extracii. And tracii is important because it is an evergreen fern. Like I said, the Jordani is a summer deciduous, and the Western maidenhair fern is its opposite. So together, they create an evergreen fern. It's native only to California, the Tracei, and it's the one that if you do come across a maidenhair fern at a nursery, most particularly in California, the one that you're most likely going to be finding is the Tracei. And I believe that is in part due to that mysterious alien pathogen that I had mentioned earlier in this episode. And for some reason, I can't stop imagining something like the blob when I think about this this thing. And this this thing I, I'm referencing is keeping way more serious than I intend. It is called, it's it's a mouthful, this, this pathogen, Phytophthora remorum, which is more commonly known as sudden oak death. The Jordani and the Ludicum are both known carriers of sudden oak death and are in fact regulated by the government in import and export, and I believe even in the selling to nurseries, um, if they haven't been checked. I am unclear as to how rigorous this is still being maintained, if much at all. However, it is almost not impossible to find either of these. But so let's talk a little bit about Sun Oak Death, our Phytopathora remorum. It is responsible for the deaths of the Coast Live Oak, a native oak, and the tan oak. It is also responsible for a nasty uh, disease called remorum blight, 
which afflicts woody ornamentals and understory plants in uh, forests. It can cause bleeding cankers on the oaks, which is just terrible. They, they, they look like they are actually bleeding. The U.S. and Europe, because it actually this is a global problem, this is not something that's just to California, they generally approach the situation of a sudden oak death infected area um, by the eradication of infected plants. Are they also to containment or quarantine? The disease was first discovered or noticed rather in Marin County back in the 90s when residents noticed a sharp decline in oaks in their area. It wasn't until much later in 2004 that the genome of the pathogen was recognized and isolated but by that time, it had already ravaged most of the coastal forests, both in California and all the way up to southern Oregon. Also in the early 2000s, around the time that the, the genome was sequenced, researchers realized that rhododendrons and viburnums were having issues, and an investigation was sent underway for all nursery stock in California. They found that rhododendrons were infected, and this caused... In fact, the first nursery that was discovered to have infested stock was in Santa Cruz County. That was way back in 2001. One reason why this is really important that it can survive in um, nursery stock is that the nursery can actually kind of simulate the environment that it would naturally thrive in, which is cool, wet climates, or like the coast. Nurseries can actually mimic um, a lot of the characteristics of coastal environments for plants. And this is really important because once a nursery is infected, you know, it's difficult to trace and track how that pathogen is going to spread. And it did. It spread all over the country. When um, a few large nurseries here in the West Coast accidentally shipped out over a million rhododendrons that were infected, also camellias. And after this happened, um, it was too late to take it back. Um, the damage had already been done. And there were detections after this in about 176 different nurseries in 21 different states. Now what might seem strange to think that this is an issue um, beyond just for maybe the owners of nurseries or um, for the forests, they don't, they don't particularly care about um, coastal forests, there's a huge economic impact that the phytoprothrombin pit on this country, um, and it's estimated that it was upwards of the tens of millions that it cost, and this is due to uh, decreased nursery and ornamental crops, due to the decreased property values of people who had oaks or plants affected with vermont blight on their property. Um, the cost, the large cost of just monitoring, tracking, and eradicating uh, plants that were infected and trying to eradicate the pathogen. And also, I think something that isn't talked about that much is the um, loss of resources for native fauna and then the need to um, take care of them. Curiously, one of the best indicators that there is Bottothorum remorum in, in your area is if there is a California bay laurel, uh, which <laughs> I guess brings a new meaning to don't rest on your laurels because if you do, you know, you might contract uh, sudden oak death, which would be terrible. And I didn't see any specific literature on exactly why the maidenhair ferns are carriers, but I would imagine it's because of their proximity to water sources where they grow. 
um, especially since a lot of these are going to be lithophic um, California maidenhair ferns, they're probably picking up the pathogen as it's being spread by water. So it doesn't really cause much of a problem probably where they are, but when that when those maidenhair ferns are taken out of their context, you know, that phytoformorm can cause lots of damage. And as of just a couple of years ago, as of um, December 14, 2017, um, this is coming from the California Oak Mortality Task Force website. The greatest noted density of the pathogen is in the central coast all the way up to Sonoma, with nothing really existing in the interior valleys or southern coasts. And then all the way up in Humboldt, there does exist an island of, of areas infected by rumor. So for such a simple, unassuming, delicate, beautiful fern that you know, grows in these almost ironically rugged locations along, you know, rock faces or along um, a stream of rainfall or on maybe on debris or under, let's say, a redwood. They're complicated. They're complicated little things. And I think they carry with them a lot of interesting images and they're capable of invoking a lot of imagination. I mean, just in this episode, I have talked about dinosaurs, which I think is implicit in them insofar as our understanding of them as a fern, as something that's kind of like prehistoric or, you know, before the advent of man. And I think they even hold within them a particular conception of what it means to be wild. And then also they have, you know, this kind of alien pathogen or, thinking of them as this houseplant that's kind of taking the houseplant world by storm, or even the blob. You know, they just, there's just all these colorful components to it, and I really hope that through all this very densely organized episode that you see them in a new way, and that when you, you know, maybe see one at your friend's house or if you're out in nature, and I hope, you know, you be careful and you don't um, step on it or if you do, you know, touch it to wash your hands, that you're kind of taken away in these images and this plant's ability to kind of inspire creativity. Um, and I hope that also just with plants in general, you start investigating because as I am shown time and time again with this show, whenever I investigate a plant, there is so much um, behind it. So it's definitely not a plug for this show, but I will say before I go that if you are growing a maidenhair fern, that it's probably the southern maidenhair fern, which is the Adiantum capillus vernaris, I believe, which sadly is going extinct, it seems, in its natural habitats, um, which I believe is in um, the Appalachian Mountains. People have been reporting that they've seen it less and less, I believe. Um, but it is becoming more and more common as a houseplant. And if you are having difficulty with it, uh, you know, don't give up hope. Keep trying. Um, if you're finding that um, it's difficult to keep it moist, I would recommend trying the rock method where you create a layer of rocks beneath the pot to help moderate the level of humidity. But I wish you the best of luck and I'll see you next time.